welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Jessica Davis, and joining me today is Kent Roach, Michael Nesbitt, and Amarnath Amersingham to talk about the Toronto 18 and a new book on the topic coming out soon. This month marks the 15-year anniversary of the arrests in that case. The book is called Canadian Terror, Multidisciplinary Perspectives on the Toronto 18 Terrorism Trials, and it's edited by two of our guests, Michael Nesbitt and Kent Roach, and David Sue Hoffman. It's going to be published by the Manitoba Law Journal, Robson Criminal Edition Collection, and will be available open source on their website, but also in other online places where you can find academic articles. The editors wanted this to be as accessible as possible, and because it's an interdisciplinary work, they really thought that it shouldn't just live in a law library. And on a final note, before we launch into the podcast, over the next few weeks and in conjunction with the release of the book, we will host Intrepid Podcasts with interviews with some of the authors. So welcome, everyone. Welcome, Thank Jessica. You, Thanks. So Amara and I have some questions we want to ask about the development of the book and what it means for the future of terrorism studies in Canada. But Mike, maybe you can set the scene for us a bit. Can you give us a brief summary of the Toronto 18 terrorism plot for those who may not be familiar with it? Sure. So 15 years ago this week, the world and Canada became aware of the Toronto 18 terrorism plot. And that was because on June 2nd, 2006, in the western suburb of Mississauga, Ontario, hundreds of police officers and security operatives mobilized in simultaneous raids as part of an interagency operation dubbed what we now know as Project Osage. Uh, it was the single largest terrorism-related sting in Canadian history. It was the largest apprehension of individuals implicated in a quote-unquote homegrown terrorist plot that the Western English-speaking world had ever seen. Fifteen individuals were arrested that day, including three minors. Two more individuals were already in prison and were arrested, and then a subsequent arrest of an 18th individual uh, a couple months later. These 18 individuals then became known as what we now described as the Toronto 18. Although one of the things the book points out is that this is a bit of a misnomer for, as you can tell, 17 were arrested on June 17th or uh, June 2nd. There were a, I think 11 total convicted. So charges were dropped or stayed against seven individuals. So in some ways you might, if you're a lawyer, count them as the Toronto 11. And of course, some of the network analysis we've seen elsewhere and in this book indicates that we have upwards of 40 individuals uh, implicated in, in various ways. So you might also want to look at a much larger number, but nevertheless, we are stuck with the Toronto 18, 18 as the name. The police at the time described the accused as, quote, adherents of a violent ideology inspired by Al-Qaeda and noted that some of the accused had been arrested, attempted to purchase what they thought was three tons of explosive fertilizer but was actually due to CSIS's intervention an inert substance. The group was also not necessarily one group. So they started off as one group and the best known engagement by this one group was at what was called the Washago training camp. And so there were two competing narratives about this camp at the time. One was of a group of ill-prepared young men playing paintball, engaging in winter camping during the 2005 Christmas break. The competing narrative stressed that while at the camp, the participants were shown Al-Qaeda videos, excerpts from extremist texts, and that violence was advocated. Eventually, these, this Toronto 18, as it were, 
splintered into two groups. And so one was the what's sometimes known as the Mississauga group, and the other was the Scarborough group. The Mississauga group had seven members. I won't name them here, but they can be found in the book. All of them were found guilty of various terrorism offenses. One individual was clearly the source of the most sensationalist of the threats associated with the Toronto 18, and as you found, Jess, some of the terrorist financing, including plans to storm Parliament and behead then Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Again, this is the Mississauga group, or sometimes called the Parliament Hill group. The Scarborough group, on the other hand, was considered the most dangerous and the most advanced of the two. Here we had only four individuals from the original Toronto 18, and they planned to blow up the Toronto Stock Exchange, a building that, unbeknownst to them, at the time, contained the Toronto offices of the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, which would subsequently lead the prosecution efforts against the Toronto 18, but it also included, of course, the Stock Exchange and Toronto's CSIS offices at the time. Yeah, thanks for that, Mike. I wonder if Kent can talk a little bit about some of the kind of big questions that you thought were unanswered leading into the book and why you assembled such an interdisciplinary team to look at some of these questions. Yes, no, thanks. Despite, as, as Michael has noted, making global and uh, international headlines, it was really once the arrests were done and once there was a pretty extraordinary press conference where they showed items seized, some that the authorities had provided to the Toronto 18, publication bans descended. And publication bans descended on the bail applications and on much of the preliminary inquiry. And in fact, one of these issues was litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. So at the time that the trial process was going on from 2000, 2006 to 2010, I had a very vivid interest in it because I was working on the Air India Commission with Justice Major. But we really did not get a lot of information out. So it was one of those cases where I think Canadians, a, a lot of their information came from the arrest. And then things got a lot more silent. And as the book explores, uh, a lot more complex. In terms of asking interdisciplinary, I think counterterrorism and terrorism studies are inherently interdisciplinary. I like to fancy myself as a little bit of an amateur historian. And it seems to me that when future historians are writing about this time, this is probably going to be the case that they talk about. And the intersection of history and politics, for me, was very interesting. I also learned a lot from people that were experts in the intelligence field. I've always, you know, really been fascinated by what is the different mindsets between lawyers and people uh, whose business is to collect intelligence. And I think issues of sociology and religion are also quite relevant because obviously we have to ask ourselves the question, would would this place had would this case have played out the same if it had been a different group than largely brown Muslim men? And of course, writing from today, I think all history is influenced by the concerns of today, would say right-wing extremists planning an assault on part Parliament and other institutions, would they have been treated the same? And so I think that you need 
lawyers and legal academics to crunch some of the cases because the Toronto 18 spun off just a, a daunting amount of cases. I think Michael would know better than I, but there was over 50 reported decisions. So there was a lot of raw material there, but it also required non-lawyers and people that looked at the press, people that looked at some of the risk assessments and the parole process, which of course has already played out for the vast majority of the 11 uh, men who were convicted. So it takes a village, I think, to do counterterrorism studies. And we saw this as and tried as best as we could to gather. One omission, though, and I tried to make up a little bit for that, and I think some other authors did, is we really tried to get someone from media studies. Because again, I think most Canadians got their impression from reading about this press conference. And then after that, it certainly surfaced and we did a thorough media search and learned a lot from that, say, protest against the conditions of confinement that many of the, of the people were in and, and the battle against solitary confinement, which of course has, has picked up since that time. But I wish we had more on how the media uh, covered it because reading some of the, particularly one of the things that the late Christy Blatchford wrote in, in the Globe and Mail, it really was a kind of reading that kind of a blend of news and opinion. You really see how, how Islamophobia really was part of the background of this case. Yeah, when I was revisiting the introduction for this uh, podcast, I was quite surprised that to, to read what Christy Blatchford had written at the time. And I'll, I won't read it, but I'll save it for the uh, readers when they actually get the book, because it's quite the statement and really, I think, quite reflective of the time that we were in. And I think the other thing that I think is so interesting about this book is that when this was all happening, I was working in Canadian security and intelligence. So I was really getting almost like a piecemeal view of it, some of it through classified information, some of it through the media reporting, but as a lot of it was under publication ban at the time. So when it came time to work on my piece for this and then to read the other author's contributions, I learned so much about this. And I think it really speaks to the importance of doing this kind of retrospective analysis on these cases and not just letting the media reporting or the piecemeal reporting that we see shape our understanding of this. So my question for both of you is coming into this project, you probably already had a pretty good understanding of the plot but and the subsequent trial. So what really surprised you the most in reading the different chapters. What did you learn and what interpretations challenged you? And I'll start with Mike on this question. Sure, so maybe in answer to that, Jess, I can provide a brief background as to what the chapters look like. So how the book is structured, and then we can go into what we learned. So the book is structured in essentially four parts. And what we wanted to do was start from the beginning and work towards the end, I guess. And so, we started with socio-criminological perspectives on the Toronto 18. So looking at the individuals involved, their networks, radicalization, where they came from, what their incentives were. Uh, we have network analysis. Amar has done an interview with one of the individuals involved generally in the case and so on. And so that was a, the set the scene with respect to the individuals. And then in part two, we looked at the investigation and charging of the Toronto 18. So intrepid podcast listeners will be well familiar with the drinking game, intelligence to evidence. 
And that, that came up quite prominently in this part of the book, but that was what we wanted to look at. We had a number of different perspectives based on the same source materials, these same over 50 case or decisions, three different separate trials of 11 individuals, give them to all sorts of different individuals with different methodologies and different research backgrounds and different opinions and political beliefs and all that sort of stuff and say, what, what do you come up with? And we also wanted that same thing, not just in the background of the individuals, but with respect to how this was investigated. And so in that section, we actually have academics looking at it from an academic perspective. We have former uh, CSIS officers talking about it from the perspective of CSIS uh, giving some recommendations. Uh, we have the primary prosecutor, not just of this case, but I, I think it remains to be, remains the case of, of maybe the majority of terrorism cases in Canada and Croft Michelson with, with that chapter as well. And then in the third part, we looked at the legal issues at trial. And in the fourth part, we looked at the, okay, what comes next? So we've done the individuals, we've done the investigation and charging, we've done the trial itself. And then we thought it really important to not stop there, to say, what happens to people next? So sentencing, parole, there was talk of citizen revocation at the time, all these sort of rehabilitation and reintegration. So that's the final section of the book. Perhaps I'll, with that introduction into what the book looks like, I, I will hold off on my broad takeaway and pass it over to Kent here first. Yeah, for me, I think the real surprise was I've always known as a legal matter that terrorism offenses were broad, but this really showed in a uh, more human way just how broad they are. There were essentially three trials. Only one involved a jury. And during that jury trial, the lead person pled guilty. And two others were eventually found guilty after, I think, five full days of jury deliberations. I think the jury struggled with convicting them. And so that that really made me realize just the differences between levels of involvement, levels of knowledge, levels of culpability. So it, it put a bit of a human face uh, to it. Another thing that interests me and was a discovery is at the time that the Anti-Terrorism Act was enacted, I wrote uh, a piece where I, I said we should expect more from Parliament than simply living up to the minimum standards of the Charter, because you'll recall that for the Chrétien government, the Charter proofing of the Anti-Terrorism Act was uh, very important. And one of my chapters goes through all of the Charter litigation, and there were well over 20 cases involving Charter challenges. And eventually, all of them were unsuccessful. The, the, the two that had some success in lower courts were eventually overturned uh, by the Supreme Court. Perhaps this is a confirmation bias, but I, I have to say that if I'm seeing the failures of all of the charter arguments. And then the last thing, and again, even though I was trying to follow this as carefully as I could, I was somewhat ashamed that I really never at the time was captured by the issue of how the conditions of pretrial detention for many of these people. They were held in solitary uh, confinement. That was eventually changed where they could congregate. Two of the leaders were held in the infamous Don, Don jail. And there was continued litigation about this. And there was also some writing and some groups got together to protest their conditions of confinement. But I never really 
and I say this with a, a sense of some shame, I, I, I don't remember being very aware of that at the time. And of course, as I've already said, in subsequent years, we've seen some successful charter challenges to solitary confinement. There's still a question of whether what Corrections Canada is doing now is that much better. But I think that's also a wake-up call because why were Canadian courts as sympathetic uh, to claims that solitary confinement constituted cruel and unusual punishment in the 2010s, but really were not very sympathetic to those claims when they were made on behalf of those of the Toronto 18, and it wasn't all, who were denied bail. Thanks, Kent. Now, Mike, did you want to take a minute and tell us what surprised you about this? Sure. So I have an admission right off the bat. And, and the admission is the first thing that surprised me was just how many documents there were that were relevant. But one, one of the things we did, this speaks to my own intelligence here, is we thought it would be a great idea to have everyone start from the same source material. So put together all the decisions, as many transcripts as we get, as many judgments as we could get, a huge database of articles, if we could find any that had been written, books, anything that's been written, there hasn't been that much written on this. Newspaper media clippings. So I think we had like a gig worth of possible <laughs> newspaper clippings. And we had gigabytes, plural, worth of information. And this is not information that sort of takes up a lot of space. This is like documents that are PDF and Word documents. And so that was the first thing that was surprising me was just how many I didn't expect to see over 50 decisions, I suppose, I believe that um, is accurate. Nevertheless, I did. The big shout out here then to Kevin Lee, my research assistant at the time, because I undertook this thinking, no problem, I get this together for everyone. And that ended up being a rather large task. But the other thing that flows from that is I thought it was super cool to see how when you give the same source material and a general topic to a, like a big diverse group of people with really different backgrounds, what different insights and analysis and answers you get. That's, to me, that's at a really broad level, that's the most exciting thing. It's you get all sorts of interesting, cool perspectives that I never would have thought of. So as much work as that was at the beginning and to get this sort of off the ground, 100% worth it just for that. And I hope other people appreciate that just for being, there's numerous articles that it, in this that I would never have conceived of and really challenged me in some ways, as Kent said. In general, I would say I would go by part because as you said, just to start this off, we're going to have some of the authors in to talk about their articles. So I don't want to talk uh, in too much. I don't want to put words in their mouth. They'll do a better job of it than I would. But I'd say in the socio-criminological perspectives, and I'm speaking to lawyers here, boy, do we have a lot to learn from other disciplines. And we all know this. And I knew it coming in. And Kent and I knew that it was important, which is why we have the perspectives. Uh, but it really reinforced it for me. In fact, one of the things I did after this, if people are interested also with Robson Hall, is I, I wrote an article on expert evidence and the use in terrorism prosecutions. And in part that had been started, I'd been looking at it before, but it, in part, it was also looking at some of the chapters here, including by your colleague, Kent Anver Iman, looking at these chapters and saying, we need to think about the role of expertise and the help that lawyers need when you have stuff like terrorism, where you're talking about motive and ideology and background and religion in the courtroom. And lawyers, to be frank, are not always doing it particularly well. Part two, as I said, became, it was the investigation section, but it really became in some ways the intel to evidence 
section bookended. And I would say my big takeaway there is this is a problem that we've been talking about for a long time and is absolutely not going to be solved with one big idea or one perspective. It was so clear to me after reading the chapters that the what the two individuals from CSIS, ex-officers we had, their recommendations need to be implemented. And they are different than Croft Michelson's recommendations with from the perspective of a prosecutor. And those are different from Jay Peltier and Craig Forsey's and their recommendations from several steps removed academic perspective. And so I, th I thought that was really, I thought that was really beneficial that it was also really enforced to me sort of the scope of the problem and how there's gonna be maybe rather than a big idea, a lot of tinkering, a lot of tinkering from a lot of different perspectives. One thing we didn't have there is a, we do have a defense perspective in the book, but we didn't have a defense perspective with respect to that issue as it came out. I would just, I'm not going to claim me a culpa on that because if you're looking for it, we had a number of defense lawyers. They had the audacity in more than one case to get appointed to the bench, couldn't end up writing. I would have preferred they had written the articles instead of taking that, but they're both amazing judges. So we won't blame them for that. And maybe I just reiterate as a final thing, what, what Kent was saying, and that was that last section. And especially I'm going to, I'm going to point out Reem Zayas here and we'll have her on, but really reinforce the extent to which at least lawyers, or, or maybe it's just me and I'm generalizing to lawyers, forget about what happens the moment you say guilty or not guilty. Because that's not the end of the story. In fact, it's it's not even it's not even a particularly big part of the story, right? These people have full lives. The court processes have full lives. The administrative legal processes have full lives that take place afterwards, the parole, the rehabilitation, the reintegration, all that sort of stuff. And re you know, Big shout out to her, did an amazing job and got a bunch of ATIP. So I think a number of people are now citing some of her work with respect to what's happening at, within the prison system in Canada or not happening as the case would be. Jess, I promised I wouldn't, but you're here. And so the one article I will make mention of is you wrote an article for us on terrorist financing. And again, we're hoping to interview, so I will not get into the details, but I think you and I both suspected going in, there would be some terrorist financing here. And both you and I have talked about the fact that we don't charge terrorist financing. So we thought, well, that might be interesting. We might see some and then be able to say, why no terrorist fund? It was all over these cases. It was, it was smeared from start to finish and all around all of these cases. I think it was, it's fair to say probably <laughs> was your finding. And yet, as we've discussed in the past, Zero individuals were charged at all with the terrorism financing. So I, I thought, you know, there were some things like that where I just didn't, I maybe had an inkling that we might find something like that. The extent to which you discovered it, the work you did to uncover it, the explanations you gave, really useful for any prosecutors out there looking at this, I would say. I think that's it. <laughs> Yeah, Mike, thanks for that. I, I've been in fairly frequent contact with a few of the people who've been arrested as part of the 2018. And one thing they, one thing they, you know, told me when we first started uh, talking was I, when, when I came out of prison, I had to relearn what an iPhone was. And I had to relearn all of these things that, that we now take for granted. And which reminded me like 2006 might have, might as well have been a, another planet, right? Like it wasn't, it was long before a lot of what we now talk about with terrorism uh, a lot of the assumptions we make about what terrorism is now and how radicalization happens, et cetera, weren't really present <laughs> in 2006. And so on that note, I'm, I'm curious, because it was a planet ago, what do you think 
Canadians should know about the Toronto 18 case, what the legacy of the Toronto 18 case is, why should Canadians care about the Toronto 18 case 15, 15 years later? Yeah, I start from the historic perspective, and I think that this is part of our history. And I think the things that we're going through these days with residential schools and, and all that shows that we ignore our history at our, our peril. And for me, the question in a lot of this is, did we overreact? Did we underreact? Did we get it just right? And I think that so far, the verdict of history is probably on the, we got it just right. And that may or may not uh, be right. As Michael has said, there's a real diversity of perspectives reflected in this book. And, but I do think that's something that people really have an obligation to, to ask themselves. I think also a lot of this going forward, there's a lot of issues that although you're right, that 2006 was a world ago, <laughs> although it doesn't seem that much for me, but I think I'm older than everyone here. But there's a lot of recurring issue, issues about bail, pretrial detention, jury selection. How do you choose a jury, especially if it's been highly publicized? The issues of expertise that Michael has talked about, issues of entrapment. There, there were failed entrapment defenses, but as we know with the Cordery and Nuttall, that issue has not gone away. The handling of human sources hasn't gone away. And then probably in some ways, I think most importantly, and this echoes Mike's comments, what do we do after conviction? That's an issue that is still with us and it's going to be with us for a long time. This issue of what do we do after conviction and are there things that we can do before charge that may be consistent with both public safety and restraint, given that, especially in this case, and in light of the, you know, 9-11, Madrid bombings, London bombings, because this was part of that string, recognizing that once the charges are laid, once the press conference is held, these individuals, and to some extent, larger communities, are going to live with that literally for the rest of their lives. Yeah, perhaps, that's, that, I think that's a great overview, so I won't add too much. What I'll offer is the big picture, and so the, the big picture from, from my perspective, which builds on what Kent has just said, is first of all, the, the history hasn't been told. This is a really important set of cases. It's a really important example of home, pure, as, as one individual quoted, homegrown extremism. And yet we have not really grappled with, as Kent has already said, that history. And I mean that not just for the perspective of academics or those who follow this, but really the public was aware that on June 2nd, these individuals were arrested and the RCMP has what had what I still think is a rather unprecedented display before all sorts of media, television, where they brought out all this fertilizer, talked about how much it was, what kind of damage it could do. Two days later, the individuals and their families, so we're taping this on June 4th, they're 15 years ago, they're before the courts, and that's the end of it. The media coverage just drops off within weeks. We have, as you say, publication bans. We have some defense lawyers saying it's already played out in the media, and yet we're never going to get our chance to tell the story. 
because it's not going to be told in the media where people read it. Maybe it'll be told in transcripts, but no one ever reads the transcripts, which is why I'm trying to put this stuff together. Even if there aren't publication bans, people aren't going to follow too much the sort of day-to-day -day happenings. So what they're going to see is this giant press conference that talks about Al-Qaeda-affiliated individuals and how dangerous these plots were. And then at the end, they're guilty. And that's it. And so everything in between, the other narratives that could take place, none of that has really been told. And so I think that's, the, for us, that's one of the, that's a story that needs to be told. And the, the other thing I'll just back up, this is not always the most compelling, but I have a tendency to do academics so as an academic, so I'll back it up with some stats. And I'll say, statistically, this should be really engaging to us. For example, it was one of our first Supreme Court cases one of our first two Supreme Court cases. It, even to this day, an outsized number of our decisions in Canada on this topic, on these offenses, come from this series of cases. So it has that, if you're a lawyer, it has that precedential impact, unlike any other case, at least in this area in Canada. As I said, it was at the time, it was the largest homegrown, as it, most individuals we had arrested. So it's a big deal from the perspective of studying it, the number of cases, the, uh, the fact that we had a jury trial. It was the first appeals, first decision on various terrorism offenses, first sentencing decisions. And as I discussed in my chapter, we've essentially, because there were so many sentencing decisions, we've essentially followed the narrative, right? So it set the narrative for the rest of our decisions going forward. So what we're dealing with today, the next time we have a couple going on right now in Calgary, the next time you see a terrorism trial, that narrative, the legal narrative anyways, has been set by what happened 15 years ago. And again, that circles us back full circle too. And that's a history, a legal history and a sociological history and a criminological history that we haven't grappled with. So to understand our present, I think as, as to get back to what Kent said really right off the top here, we really have to go back and understand our past. And this is in Canada, we believe, the place to start. I'm really looking forward to reading all of these chapters and listening to the author interviews coming up. And of course, nerding out with Mike when we talk about the financing components of the case. Thank you all for joining me today to talk about this really important work. Thank you Thank very much. Thanks, Justin Yes. And a reminder for our listeners, the book is called Canadian Terror, Multidisciplinary Perspectives on the Toronto 18 Terrorism Trials, and we will be available from the Manitoba Law Journal Robson Criminal Edition Collection. I'm sure all the authors will also be tweeting out links when it's available. Absolutely.